copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're continuing today in our Advent series called Holy Interruption. And over these four weeks of Advent, we are looking at each of the four angelic encounters that take place leading up to the birth of Christ. And so today we look at what is known as the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel encountering Mary. Would you stand with me this morning as we read our scripture together? Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, there are a lot of things that we could look at this morning in this uh, very familiar story. But I want us to attempt to answer one basic question, which is this. How can we exhibit the radical obedience of Mary? How can we exhibit the radical obedience of Mary? What does it take for you to respond to the call of God with, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Whether you realize it or not, God is calling each and every person in this room this morning. God is calling you. To some of us, the call is first and foremost to faith itself. The call is to turn from your sin. It's to repent. It's to follow Jesus with everything in your life. For others, the call is now to exercise obedience to Christ in the present moment, in the day-to-day, -to, -day, to die to yourself daily, to take up your cross daily. Will you do it? What's preventing you from abandoning yourself to full, radical obedience like that of Mary? 
or, or to pose that question another way, how, how can Mary say yes to this? How can Mary say yes, yes to this? God doesn't need her to say yes, does he? If you think back to last week, we looked at the story of Zechariah uh, encountering the angel, the angel coming to Zechariah and saying, uh, here's what's going to happen for you and your wife Elizabeth. God has heard your prayers. He's answering your prayers. You will have a son. His name will be John. And he, and he tells them all these incredible things that are going to happen. But if you think back to that account, at no point does Zechariah say, absolutely, we will do exactly what the Lord wants us to do. Zechariah, in fact, goes, huh? What? But not Mary. Mary says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So how does she say yes to this? Three reasons I want us to consider today. First is childlike faith. Second is the experience of God's presence. And the third is recognition of God's grace. So what do we know about Mary? What do we know about her? Well, the truth is, we don't really know all that much. We can speculate a few things. First, more than likely, Mary was a teenager at the time that this took place, and, and perhaps as young as 14. Now, just think about that for a minute. It was not uncommon for girls to enter the betrothal period leading up to marriage as early as 12 years old in this culture. This was completely unlike a modern engagement for marriage. It wasn't initiated by a romantic courtship. It wasn't initiated by a man asking a woman. Instead, it was initiated by a man asking a woman's father or vice versa. The betrothal period itself was consecrated with its own ceremony. In many senses, if you looked at kind of the marriage process, there were actually two ceremonies involved. First was the initiation of the betrothal period, which had its own legally binding ceremony. And then it was finalized with the marriage feast where the bridegroom would welcome his bride into his home, where she would leave the home of her parents and go into the home of her husband. Money changed hands between the bridegroom and the parents of the bride. The betrothal period was a season of preparation, and if the groom opted not to finalize the marriage and bring the bride to live in his home, he would actually have to go through formal divorce proceedings to nullify the betrothal agreement. Needless to say, Joseph wasn't simply Mary's boyfriend. He wasn't simply Mary's fiancé. So, so when the angel comes to Mary and explains what's going to take place, I don't know if we can really fathom the weight of what was at stake for her and her family, the weight of what was actually on the line. So, so think about this. The call of God had the potential to ruin Mary's life in an earthly sense. The call of God had the potential to disgrace her publicly, to subject her to a life of poverty, to relegate her to the status of whoredom in the community where no man would ever consider her as a potential bride. It could bring extreme dishonor to her family, her community, everything, her, her future, her life, her livelihood was on the line. And, and yet... She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according 
to your word. For all she knows, she's throwing everything out the window to say yes in obedience. And so must we. Why is it that we perhaps assume that the call of Christ would never involve some level of risk? Why is it that we sometimes assume that the call of Christ wouldn't require us to take a step of faith where we say, I don't really know what's going to happen here. I don't really know how this is going to go for me with my friends or my family. I don't know what's going to happen to me socially as a result of this. We live in a world today where American Christianity often teaches that uh, following God in obedience always results in almost instantaneous or immediate material blessings. That that's somehow a way that you know you're following God correctly. That, that's a, what a lot of American Christianity is putting out there today, which is a false gospel. It's completely unbiblical. This idea that if you are following God in complete obedience, then, then nothing but good material, kind of worldly goods are going to come to you. That's in no way a biblical understanding of the gospel. In fact, Jesus tells his own followers, listen to me, if they hated me, how do you think they're going to treat you, right? If people hated me for the gospel I was proclaiming, what do you think will happen in your life? They're going to hate you as well. You look at the lives of the apostles, lives of extreme faithfulness and obedience, and what happens to them? All but one were murdered for following Jesus in obedience. So don't tell me that saying yes to Christ in obedience is going to naturally result in immediate material blessings in a worldly, earthly, human sense. That's not what scripture teaches us. And so there is potential here for Mary for this to not go well for her in a human sense. Why do we think sometimes that the call of Christ would not involve some level of leaving behind what could have been in our lives. John Stott says this, there can be no following without a previous forsaking. To follow Christ is to renounce all lesser loyalties. In the days when he lived among men on earth, this meant a literal abandonment of home and work, Simon and Andrew left their nets and followed him. James and John left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Matthew, who heard Christ's call while he was sitting at the tax office, left everything and rose and followed him. Imagine what people said about those guys. Can you believe what they did to their families? Can you believe what they did to their father? Can you believe what they did to their employer? But it goes back even farther. Noah, Abraham, Moses, 
Joshua, and on and on and on and on, all abandoned themselves to the call of God. They abandoned themselves to do things that seem completely ridiculous or illogical or at best improbable. Just imagine Joshua leading this group of people around the fortified walled city of Jericho, circle after circle after circle, going, don't worry, we're going to blow our horns in a minute and take the city. Can you imagine what people were saying about him? Could you imagine what people were thinking? This is what God's called us to do. What? How many times in scripture is that the story? I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know what this is going to mean for me in the long run. But here's what God has said. Here's what he has called us to. These guys abandoned themselves to the ridicule of men, to the potential for loss of life, loss of possessions, loss of status. And ultimately, guys, this is childlike faith. It's trusting God even when maybe it doesn't seem to make sense to us. Sometimes we call this blind faith, uh, which is to say that it's faith that goes against human logic or knowledge or prudence. But listen, true faith isn't based on any of that stuff, is it? Like true faith isn't based on human logic or knowledge or prudence. It isn't based on anything remotely human. It isn't based on your own understanding or your own ability. In fact, Hebrews says that it's actually based on the conviction of things that you haven't seen. It's based on invisible stuff, y'all. The kind of invisible stuff that can make a hundred-year-old woman give birth. The kind of invisible stuff that can part the waters of the ocean the kind of invisible stuff that can guide a rock from the sling of a scrawny boy into the forehead of a mighty warrior. It can shut the mouths of lions. It can bring life into the womb of a 14-year-old virgin. I love how Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One translation reads, Unless you change and become like children, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you modify your life, unless you become something different than what you are, unless you believe in things unseen, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. So it is with this childlike faith that Mary embraces her encounter with Gabriel. I want to show you guys a couple of paintings this morning that I, I think will kind of set the stage for some of this. The first of these, um, both of these were painted in the 1800s. Uh, the first is the story we looked at last week. This is Zachariah with the angel Gabriel. And, and just, just take a moment and look at this. This is a painting by William Blake. What do you see here? Uh, Zachariah is in the temple. He's wearing the priestly garb. Notice he has his swinging censer of incense. He's in the temple offering worship to God, offering incense up to God. It's ornate. 
There are candles that are lit. Here's this angel appearing to him in the midst of all of this. I don't know about you, but my thought is, if anybody should be prepared for an angel to show up, or if anybody should know how to respond when an angel shows up, it should be somebody that looks like that, right? If anybody should have a sense of what's going on when there's some kind of God presence moment, it should be somebody that's dressed up in that kind of costume, right? Right? These are the people who should know. Like these are the people who've supposedly said yes to the call of God in their life, who have followed him in obedience in their life. These are the people who should go, got it, I'm on it, I've been waiting for this, right? Let me show you another painting. This is by Henry Tanner and is simply called The Annunciation. This is Mary encountering the same angel Gabriel. But notice how different this is. Notice the setting. Look at her. She looks like a child being awakened in her bed in the middle of the night. The bed sheets are just kind of strewn about the bed. The rug is messed up. It needs to be straightened. This isn't luxury, is it? This isn't a palace. This isn't great wealth. Notice the apprehension in her eyes and, and yet, yet this sense of listening. Why do I show you these? So if we think back for a moment to Zachariah's encounter with Gabriel, the two experiences are very similar, aren't they? But with one noticeable difference. Mary thinks like a child, and Zachariah thinks like an old man. Both of them ask a question of Gabriel. Mary asks, how will this be? since I'm a virgin. Zechariah asks, how will I know this, for I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years? And both of those questions sound very similar, but they're actually really different. Here's the deal. Mary's question is one of functionality. She's going, how, how is this going to go come about? Like, how, how is this going to take place? Zechariah's question is one of skepticism. He essentially asks Gabriel, how can I know that you're telling me the truth? How can I be sure? <laughs> like, don't you know I'm an old guy? Don't you know my wife is old? In the message, Eugene Peterson renders this verse um, where Zachariah asks or responds to the angel. He, he says, do you expect me to believe this? I'm an old man and my wife is an old woman. If, if anybody, think about these pictures, if anybody would be the one to go, yes, you would think it would be the one who has had the most experience, the most wisdom, the greatest number of years. Do you expect me to believe this? I love Gabriel's response to Zechariah in verse 19 of Luke 1. He says, 
I am Gabriel. <laughs> I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you good news. He says, how, should, how, how can I know this? I'm an old man. My wife's an old woman. And it's like the angel goes, bro, I'm Gabriel. Do you need me to go get Michael too? Like, what else do you need in order to believe this? Don't you see me standing in front of you? Don't you hear me telling you that your prayers have been answered? What, what's it going to take? Mary, on the other hand, recognizes and accepts that she is in the presence of the Lord. That there is something supernatural going on here. That it is God that is calling her. And that her option is really only to say yes. Zachariah is the one who should fully recognize and believe him, but he struggles because the angel is saying something that doesn't compute to him. He's saying something that he's never seen happen before. Does anybody else identify with Zechariah? Like you're praying for something, and, and, and you're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying, or you're, you're showing up, and you're worshiping, and you're worshiping, and you're worshiping, but, but, but in your heart of hearts, do you honestly believe that God's going to show up? Like, do you believe that God's going to answer the prayers that you've been praying over and over again? I get the sense from Zachariah, he, he's going, what? Yeah, we've been praying that, but this just become almost routine and ritual now in our life. Like we never, certainly at this point, never thought you were going to actually do anything. Where are you in that? When he shows up, are you skeptical? When he guides you and leads you and calls you, do you go, eh, eh, I don't know. Sometimes we're surprised when our answer to prayer also involves us giving up something. How have we forgotten that just as we want things from God, God also wants things from us, right? C.S. Lewis says that this principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Listen, nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. I love that. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. So Mary exercises this childlike faith. She embraces and responds to the presence of God. And then finally, she recognizes God's grace in the midst of this experience. One other significant difference between the account of Zechariah and that of Mary is the way that the angel addresses them. To Zechariah, he says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. 
But to Mary, he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And first of all, I, I think there is something significant to be made of, of this statement, the Lord is with you. Because we know the rest of the story here. Like we're talking about Jesus, the incarnation of God, the word become flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. The angel arrives and says, the Lord is with you. And, and isn't he? Like, isn't the Lord with Mary? Isn't Mary with the Lord? Right? Isn't he literally within her? Like growing within her womb? Emmanuel, God with us. I love this. This could also be translated, the master is among you. Greetings, O favored one. The master is among you. He has come to dwell among you and me. God with his creation. But it's the first part of this statement I want us to pay attention to where he says, greetings, O favored one. When Mary doesn't know how to respond to that type of greeting, he basically repeats it and says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Here's this word favor again. And the root here in the Greek is the word charis, which is often translated as grace. Don't be afraid. You have found grace with God. Greetings, O graced one. And what is grace if it isn't God's unmerited favor towards us? I think sometimes when we read the scriptures in English, we can come away with the notion that God chooses people like Zachariah and Mary because maybe they're like the least sinful people or they have the fewest problems, but, but, but no, these are still people who are desperately in need of God's grace. And, and let us not lose sight of the fact today that Mary was just as much in need of a Savior as we are. For those of you who grew up in the Catholic Church, Mary is often seen as the one through whom all grace flows. She's sometimes called the mediatrix. That the grace of Christ comes from him and it goes through her and she dispenses it out. But Mary is not some dispenser of grace because we've just read that she is a recipient of God's grace. And it is God's grace alone that even puts her into this position. There is no way... A human being can carry the God child in her womb without the unadulterated, unfiltered grace of God. And if there could ever be an encouraging word spoken over the life of a believer, it would be this, don't be afraid. You have found grace with God, right? If you have found grace with God, what? could you ever be afraid of? What do you ever have to fear? You have found grace with the creator of all things. Don't be afraid. 
childlike faith, God's presence and a recognition of his true presence, God's grace is found through Christ. These are all things that we have to recognize, that we have to pursue, that we have to cultivate in our own lives. But it's actually the table of the Lord that brings all of these things together. Here's this idea that we find in Scripture. That our Father in Heaven wants to dine with us. That He's actually, Revelation says, standing at the door and knocking. And, and if we will open the door and let Him in, He will come and sit down and He will dine with us. I think everything that we're talking about today comes together in the body and blood of Jesus. It comes together in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the life and grace that is offered to us through what he has done on our behalf. That's the reason why we will celebrate communion in just a moment. Childlike faith, God's presence, God's grace, this is my body. This is my blood, and through this, God's presence, the Holy Spirit, and God's grace are extended to you. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, God's grace and presence are extended to you. One thing that Jesus says to his followers on the night that he is crucified is this. This is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. And what is a covenant? Well, it's an agreement, right, that's, that's made between two or more parties. But in a biblical sense, it's an agreement that sustains even if one party abdicates their responsibilities. So, so most often we compare this to the marriage covenant, right? This in sickness and health for better or worse, for richer or poorer type thing, right? So, so even if you go, even if things go south, even if you go off the rails, I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to uphold my side of this agreement. Me upholding my side of the agreement is not contingent on you upholding your side of the agreement. That's kind of the basic idea here. So think about that and consider the fact that Jesus raises the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Right? This is the new covenant in my blood. And what did we just say a covenant is? It's an agreement between two or more parties. So this isn't just something that Jesus is doing. He's also calling you into this covenant. He's also calling you into this agreement. For better or worse. In sickness and in health. Even when things go south. And he is supremely faithful in upholding his end of the agreement. But what about you? Do you even think about it in this way? What do you do when the relationship gets hard? What do you do when he's calling you to do something that you don't want to do? What do you do when he's calling you to do something that doesn't make sense to you? What do you do when you don't have the full picture? What do you do when you don't know how things are going to turn out? 
Do you press in even more to your relationship with him? Or do you go the other way? My, my sense is most people go the other way. In moments of uncertainty, in moments of hardship, in trials, rather than embracing it as a gift, which is what James tells us we should do, I, I think most of us, our tendency, our sin nature pulls us in the other direction. The direction of going, is this stuff even real? Right? right? Doesn't God love me? Isn't God good? So, so why is this going on? Like, why would he ask me to do this? Doesn't he know what I'm putting on the line here? Doesn't he know what I've worked for? Doesn't he know what I want to do with this money? Right? Why, why would he ask me to do this? As we come to the table this morning, I, I think about this as like a wedding ring. What, what's the purpose of your wedding ring? It, it's, it's so that we look at it and, and we're reminded, right, of the agreement we made. Like we're reminded of the covenant that we entered into. And so when Jesus said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, he, he, he didn't mean like in like a, just a historical sense. He wasn't just saying, hey, whenever you eat this meal, I, I want you to go, hey, remember that time, you know, when Jesus said, blessed are the meek? No, no, no. There's more to it than that. He's saying, I want you to remember that I went to the cross and I didn't stay dead. I came back from the dead. And I want you to remember that then I said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. I want you to be reminded of that, and I want you to go and do what I've sent you to do. I want you to be faithful to this new covenant that I have established in and through my blood. And, and if we're being honest, we are so unfaithful. We are so unfaithful. But he is supremely faithful. And his faithfulness endures. And his grace endures. And his forgiveness endures. And he does this incredible thing where he actually gives us his righteousness. where none of this is actually based on our ability to uphold our end of the bargain, is it? None of this is based on us, through our own merit or action, being able to say, yeah, I've kept the covenant perfectly. Because none of us can do that. This is based on his grace. Given to us. Paul says as a gift. It's just here. So this morning, as we think about Mary, I grew up in the Baptist church, y'all. We never talked about Mary, right? We weren't lighting candles because, God forbid, we even be remotely liturgical. But yet, what happens here is truly extraordinary. And, and I worry sometimes that this story is so commonplace to us this time of year that we we miss just how incredible this is. 
So let's take a moment together and where we are, spend some time reflecting on what Jesus has done for us. His faithfulness, his generosity, his grace. Let us reflect on how much we don't know. How much of who God is and how he works and how he moves, how mysterious so much of that is. And let us as children respond to him this morning by coming to his table and being reminded of his great and abiding and never-ending love for us and this incredible mission that he has called us into as his church. If you're a believer, we invite you to join us this morning in this time of communion by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. Let me pray for us. And the band's going to come up, and then I encourage you to come as you feel led this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness and love. I pray this morning that even just looking at this short account, that we would be freshly inspired and renewed to pursue you with the whole of our lives, that we would be willing to say yes to you no matter what it might mean for us, no matter what kind of impact it might have on us socially or materially. Father, may we be willing to pursue you with everything and give you everything and follow you with everything. Because truly, if we have found grace in Christ, then there is no amount of money we can earn in this world that will ever be greater. There is no position, there's no authority that we can gain that will ever amount to more. There is nothing that we can attain for ourselves that would any way even compare to the grace that we have received through Jesus. And so let us with humility come to this table this morning with a deep and abiding sense of gratitude and thankfulness. And may it remind us of the beauty of this covenant and the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We love you, Father. It's in your name. Amen.